The Confluence Story Gathering Podcast is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit that connects people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River system. Find us at confluenceproject.org. We are not, as most people would expect, monument builders. We do not construct edifices to pay heed to the past. We keep track of the past in our oral histories, in our hearts, and in our minds. Welcome to the Confluence Story Gathering podcast, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. In today's episode, we're taking a closer look at monuments and what they mean to the indigenous peoples of the Pacific Northwest and California. With protesters toppling Confederate statues and calls for new monuments that represent historically marginalized groups, the idea of what monuments mean and who decides what is deserving of a monument has been evolving. Today on the Confluence Story Gathering podcast, we explore the concept of monuments with the help of three indigenous women who live in the Pacific Northwest. Bobby Connor is an enrolled member of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation and director of the Tamustalict Cultural Institute. Dina Dart is coastal Chumash and Mestiza, descended from the indigenous peoples of California, and has worked as a curator at several museums. And Emily Washines is an enrolled member of the Yakima Nation and board member of the Museum of Culture and the Environment. This discussion was part of a Confluence virtual panel held in April 2021 in partnership with Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington. It was one of a series of events related to the college's exhibition of archival materials from the Confluence projects along the Columbia River by Maya Lin. Our moderator is Matt Reynolds, professor of art history and visual cultural studies at Whitman College. The topic of today's panel discussion is about monuments. And my question to all of you is, is how you see the Confluence Project fitting into that term or, or not, too. And Bobby, I wondered if, I, if maybe you would start us off, because I know you're very, very familiar with Confluence and have been involved with it from its inception. I want to just begin by explaining that in our plateau culture, uh, the Columbia River Plateau that is a shared culture amongst the Nez Perce, Yakima, Palouse, Wanapum, uh, Cayuse, Umatilla, Walla Walla, and Warm Springs, and many bands with identities and village names that are much more precise than those sort of um, arbitrary and somewhat uh, misnomered identities. We have a way in our culture of memorializing, and it is I would guess an an official protocol of our people and how we remember the people who are deceased and how often we do that. And we have the expectation that our ancestors live again, as the Sioux would say, at the other side camp. They are waiting for us to join them, um, but they are not gone from our presence. And so we have a spiritual ongoing connection to our ancestors And so when we memorialize them, we do it once. It's not that we forget them after that. In fact, we remember them vividly. It is the expectation of our people that we clean the graves, at least annually, if not more often, that we tend to our ancestors as carefully and caringly as we would have 
in their lives, but we memorialize their life, distribute their belongings, and come out of mourning one time. So memorials have a very specific meaning. A memorial horse procession um, is paying homage to our ancestors. It's not a parade. It's not a commercial sort of, you know, promote your business kind of parade. And we have official functions for how we honor people uh, who are alive and how we honor people who are deceased. And so in the culture, we are not, as most people would expect, monument builders. We do not construct edifices or sculptures typically or obelisks to pay heed to the past. We keep track of the past in our oral histories, in our hearts, and in our minds. And many of us have been involved in publishing projects and written and historical documentation um, by recording of the past. But how we handle the past is a thoughtful process. In working with Maya, specifically, she does not, after the Vietnam Wall and the table (laughs) in Montgomery, she just didn't want to become a specialist in monuments. That's not the identity and the work that she wanted to undertake. And in conversations with her, what she appreciated about the work that was going to take place on the Confluence Project that Anton Minthorn, former chairman of our Board of Trustees and former chairman of our General Council uh, for a decade and a half, and still a master speaker and a teacher in our culture, what he wanted was to, at these important places where rivers meet, where tribal people used to camp together and cultures used to exchange not only goods, but philosophies, languages, ideas, that at these places he wanted, when we started working on the Lewis and Clark Bicentennial, to commemorate and give a visual reminder to people on the Columbia River and its confluences that just because you don't see us doesn't mean we're not here. We may be invisible to you, but we are not gone and we should not be forgotten. And what Maya wanted to embrace was the living culture, the living people, and to let the world know that not only have we, since the arrival of Lewis and Clark, engaged in a lot of change voluntarily, but we've also had a lot of change that was forced upon us. The landscape has been changed and altered dramatically most notably at Celilo Falls, the richest fishery in the West for thousands and thousands of years. And so what she wanted to be able to bring to the public's attention was the absence of knowledge, for the most part on their part, that is represented by you not seeing us. And you may run into me in the grocery store or the library and not know you're seeing someone who is of the plateau culture. You may run into people from our community and not know that they are Cayuse or Umatilla or Walla Walla in ancestry. And so the, the consequence of our invisibility is that people tend to diminish the importance of the Indian perspective and 
Sometimes others fill in for us and make conjectures about what we would say or what we would think or how we feel about something when in fact we're still here to represent ourselves. And she wanted to be ever mindful that we still have a story to tell and we wanna tell it and that she wanted to help reflect that story on the land in a living way. So in that sense, they are reminders they are physical structures, the bird blind, the land bridge. All of those are reminders of our continuing presence in this landscape, but they are not monuments to our past or to our survival. They are reminders of our continued presence in this continuum. Thanks so much, Bobby. I really appreciate that beautiful reply. Dina, I wonder if I could ask you kind of the same question. I know you're also very familiar with the Confluence Project. I first came, became acquainted with the Confluence Project when I was at the Portland Art Museum, and um, they were developing a, a tour, and we took our docents on a, um, a sort of a, a, a tour of several of the sites. And um, the thing that struck me most about the folks that were involved were primarily that they regularly deferred to Native people as the the keepers of their stories and the experts in their own histories. And then I served on their board for about a year and a half. It was a great honor, but I, but during the time that I've, I've been associated with them, I've been so impressed by the, the, the work they've done to support the creation of a visible narrative that accompanies those public art sites that we've actually borrowed that model down in Southern California and are creating a, a strategy for developing a, a narrative in our home place where our narrative is, is largely invisible, as Bobby was referring to. I'm honored to be able to take the work home and do story gatherings and story circles in, in a similar way to develop the, our own first person narratives in a similar fashion. Thanks, Tina. Yeah, Emily, how about you? I'm wondering, I'm curious to hear your thoughts as well about confluence and monuments and I know we talked beforehand and we had a really wonderful conversation and you mentioned mountains too you know we mentioned different forms of, of monuments as well yeah so when I think of the work that confluence has done just broadly on along the Columbia River in connection with tribal members and tribes I do think of the uh, reference points basically along the river that they're giving so we can have these physical reference points now because we have Zoom, we can have technology reference points. And there are things that exist. There are inequalities that exist with tribes like a digital divide. And you know, being able to bring those resources and bring community together to talk about something is streamlined with people behind the scenes, writing all the tech, doing all the Google Docs, you know, running a slide. All of these, you know, technical aspects that can really slow you down, especially when they might be triggering. Um, I do also think, of course, of the support of Native artists. Um, there are, of course, artists that, you know, so amazing work and sell things that, that, you know, would be paid thrice over in other areas if they were available. And just knowing that our Native artists are getting the support from Confluence is a is something that is very heartwarming to see that somebody is able to be honored and recognized as an artist, that I'm able to take our other youth and other aspiring artists to them and show 
support for that and recognize like, hey, natives can be artists. This is the kind of work that they can do. It's not just this um, stereotypical image that we're going to only have and maintain. So when we think about monuments, we think about, we, you know, you brought up the point about what are they to us? Um, Roberta spoke earlier about, you know, what are traditional aspects of um, how we honor people. And I think, you know, as traditional people, we have those reference points ingrained in us. I like to talk about with my girls in the same way that I was raised. Some of you that are native, this will probably be familiar. Some that are uh, non-native or reconnecting might not be as familiar, but when we gain knowledge and when we learn about things, it isn't always the stereotypical image that you've seen on TV where we are all dressed in regalia and around a fire. Sometimes it is those moments. Sometimes we are in beautiful regalia and there's songs in the background and we're receiving these messages and knowledge. But a lot of times it's you get messages throughout your life when, when you're doing everyday ordinary things. And so, you know, when we talk about this record of voices now that Confluence is bringing forward, when we talk about what we're elevating, we also think of these moments in these times as a Native people. We think and reflect back to, you know, where are those moments that I'm driving along uh, the Yakima that I'm looking up and seeing the mountain that was renamed to a uh, Yakima woman that fought in our Yakima war. It was renamed from a, a person on the other side that fought. Now, we as Native people can recognize that. We filled out all the forms. We did all of the footwork for that. But Google Maps still doesn't recognize it. It still recognizes it as the non-Native soldier. USGS misidentified her English name. So we can do all these steps. We can have all these things and all these aspects. And we can bring this information forward and we can put it right in front of people but it, there's still disconnected systems that exist in the United States. It's a very neutral way of putting it, right? There's still things that disconnect us. And so when I think about monuments and when I thought about this discussion, I thought of the mountain because it's a source of inspiration. When she technically fought in the war, she was the age that my daughters are. And so I talked to them about that. So one kind of theme of the exhibition at Whitman in relation to confluence is the theme of decolonization. And we realize that that's a complicated term for somebody at Whitman to use. And nevertheless, I would just say that um, my students, when I raise the issue in, in my classes, they're really, really interested in it. They're very, very invested in it, frankly. They are invested in social justice and, and decolonization is, is something that really interests them. Dina, I was wondering, you, you mentioned decolonization earlier, and I know you're talking about the work that you're doing in California. I, I was wondering if, if you might want to weigh in on that or just tell us more about what you're doing. Yeah, thanks, Matt. I'd love to talk with you a little bit about, sort of frame it in a way that allows you to see how what I have to talk about here connects with the Confluence Project and uh, the interventions that have been made by Columbia River tribes to reframe, retell their stories. There are many Native people who don't believe that decolonization is even possible, right? What would that mean, extracting all of the settlers and all of the Western thinking from <laughs> North America? And, but I believe there are interventions that we can continually make and ways that we can anchor Indigenous thought and values. 
we're so struck by the, the blatant racism that that's flooded social media today after the comments that Rick Santorum made yesterday. I just wanted to start with that really quickly because this is a common belief among many Americans, right, that natives, if they still exist, are sort of a fragment of reality or something. And um, so the reestablishment of our narratives and the recognition of our own important places and and centering our stories about those places is so vital. I, I love that along the Columbia River, there are these stories um, and even, you know, even the Confluence Project's key sites that that have been targeted and then and then stories have populated the new narrative around those particular sites are so fantastic. In California, the sites that are most visible are the missions, right? And these monuments to genocide. And um, I just wanted to give you a, a little bit of a visual about what we're up against there in California, where the most densely populated places were along the coast. Thousands and thousands of diverse groups lived along that coastline. And after the mission system and then the subsequent two colonizing forces, there are no federally recognized tribes on that whole central coast from San Francisco to almost San Diego. And so there's real living implications of these monuments, right? The missions that continue to to frame our stories. And um, these lovely bells that line Highway 101 and the missions themselves that are used as supplementary teaching devices for third and fourth grade. And especially over the last decade, there's been a lot of protest around those monuments and um, the taking down of some of the Unipurosera statues and replacement of some of the um, monuments to settlement by members of my own community. But what's missing is the really vibrant cultural narrative that exists within our communities. It's largely invisible, as Bobby spoke about. Um, so this leads to this idea of, you know, what does it mean to, to be strategic rather than tactical? I really, I honor the work of the Confluence Project and all the Native people who have been involved because it's been this very strategic um, set of interventions, right? It's not been a tactical one-off. It's been a very uh, well thought out plan. And, um, and in that way, Native people have been able to really take back the narrative in along the Columbia River. And so this leading to this idea of decolonization is that it, it, this is sort of my theory of, um, of decolonization in, in a sustainable or a lasting way has to be an, an, an actual application and applied decolonization that starts one with unsettling the existing narrative, right? And really um, grappling with what it means to be seeing life through a Western worldview and how divisive and destructive that has been and just really recognizing that and unsettling that. And then secondarily to recognize that there's a set of values and principles and goals that are inherent to the place where you're currently standing. And, and those are the indigenous values, the local tribes, those nations that occupied those lands for thousands of years. And then thirdly, to um, not only, you know, be listening to those people, but but thirdly, to codify and anchor through policy and, and procedures and practices within these organizations that are um, occupying the lands. 
taking the work from this sort of tactical, like maybe a land acknowledgement here or there, or diversity training here or there, but taking it into a, a much more systematic process that really underscores the values and goals of, of the local Native people. Yeah, thank you so much, Tina. That was, that's really helpful. I'm wondering if, if Emily or, or Bobby, you want to respond to anything that, that Tina said? I, my daughters are Wintu, so they're California uh, descendants, and they were connected to Yakima as a result of assimilation practices, basically. So when we talk about monuments and we see those, we do think about what is being elevated up. I think about those moments when some of them are taking down. And it's, it stirs a lot up. It's like that dusty corner in my house that I've been ignoring in the pandemic that I'm just <laughs> recognize. I don't know if that's coming up for other people. You know, what is getting stirred up as a result of some of these powerful images? Their great, great grandfather actually was, went to prison because he beat up the BIA officials that were violently removing the children from his home to take them to Oregon, you know, five years and up they eventually ended up marrying uh, Yakima families. And so that's how that lineage is connected. So there is, you know, a lot of things that come into these monuments. There's a lot of history, painful history sometimes. And also, you know, what is connecting us? I, I think there's a couple of things that are interesting. So decolonization is not sort of like a prescription or a process that you step into and you travel through. Um, for us, uh, specifically for the project that's called Tomuslicht, the threat was that here's one way to do a museum with the exhibit designers and the architects and the elders who were planning the storyline, who made a very, some very elegant and simple and straightforward choices about how to develop that storyline. We made the choice not to rely on academics outside our culture in the sense that we were not going to have a project historian who came in from the outside. Because what we know is that the printed word has always outweighed our oral history as uh, corroborative and historic data that was vital and was always given credence when ours perhaps was not even considered. And so we look at what we privilege in our storytelling, the Indian point of view, the tribal languages, the way that we would interpret the tribal languages into English versus the way someone else might, the way we would interpret the use of a song or the reason for a gathering, the way we would talk about an object or an image or a name versus the way someone outside our culture would. We're lucky in some ways. We've been studied by lots of people, historians, anthropologists, linguists. But we're also lucky that we had a lot of elders who chose to document, who chose to make choices to leave something for those of us who came behind. And by virtue of what they did, they gave us the opportunity to privilege their information, their teachings, their elders, their ancestors' teaching. And so we don't come at things from a decolonizing point of view. We look at it differently. We frame it from inside our culture. How do we look at our own story, our history, our culture, our social uh, 
processes, our societal structure, our pedagogy, how do we look at that from inside the culture and give ourselves the freedom not to have a Western linear (laughs) analysis, give ourselves the freedom to look at things with a lens the way our old people might have talked about it. And so I think there are people who want to juxtapose the colonialism and the colonized processes with what we're doing, but they're not opposites. We're not doing anything like what they're doing. We're looking at it from our own point of view. Sometimes we have to peel back the layers. Sometimes we have to dig a little deeper in our own community to get what we need to know to go forward. But we make a choice every time we privilege that information. And then if we choose to use corroborative information from outside or secondary sources, we can choose to do that. But we don't have to start with the doubt that other authors start with about whether or not they can trust the Indian point of view. Um, We don't start there. We don't start anywhere near there. That's not a thought in our minds. Um, We have confidence that the oral tradition had its own rigors and had its own discipline. And the consequence is, is that we can rely on certain kinds of information and certain sources and others not so much. And so when we undertake something, we don't necessarily have to decolonize it if we start at a place where it's ours exclusively from our point of view, from our perspective, standing in our shoes, in our languages, in our songs. We um, don't have to unpack that to redo it. We start at that place. And when we talk about monuments, memorials, statues, um, the missions in California, they're really loud statements about what somebody thinks was important for a moment at that time. But usually they're the imaginings of someone who is imagining what they believe to be a perfect state or a perfect representation. The world is not perfect. So the statues are usually flattering to the people thereof. They're not usually um, insulting to the people they're about. Um, They are usually an attempt to flatter. When we think about sort of building sort of a monument to something or someone, um, it's kind of odd because, as was already said, there are monuments to our stories all over this landscape. Coyote and the legislation and the technology of the Animal Council and the methodologies of how the world was shaped and formed before humans were here. All of that is at our disposal. And so we have monuments to the past and they're colorful, rich, vivid, especially when they're not sanitized stories. (laughs) Because uh, after the arrival of the missionaries and the school teachers, we got heavily sanitized in our storytelling. And so we have an existing set of monuments and place names and data about the ecosystem. And if that's still available to us, we don't have to start from an outside place. We can always start from an inside place. That was Bobby Connor, an enrolled member of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation and director of the Tomustalict Cultural Institute. 
We also heard from Dina Dart, a former curator who is coastal Chumash and Mestiza, descending from the indigenous peoples of California. And Emily Washines is an enrolled member of the Yakima Nation and board member of the Museum of Culture and the Environment. Our moderator was Matt Reynolds, professor of art history and visual cultural studies at Whitman College. To find out more about Confluence and the five completed sites along the Columbia River system, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. And remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit. We can only do this work because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence. That's you. Join us today at confluenceproject.org. Thanks for listening to the Confluence Story Gathering Podcast. For more episodes, visit confluenceproject.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Mm -hmm.